Listener Production. Shares, Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. Would it even be a Sunday if there wasn't a Motley Fool mailbag? I don't know. Andrew Page from strawman.com. Would it or would not be Sunday if there wasn't a Motley Fool Money special mailbag edition? Well, cl- clearly it wouldn't be the same. Wouldn't be the same, would it? Wouldn't. Peaches without cream, a guy without a girl. What do you got? You got a perfect match. Enough of that. Uh, for those who don't remember Greg Evans, just let it go over your head. Don't try it. If you do remember Greg Evans, then um, yeah, our compatibility score is 100%. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. That was that was Dexter, not uh, Greg Evans. Dexter. He gave the compat- compatibility scores. Correct. With a printout and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I, do, you, do you reckon they've made that up? Like just yes. Heads? Okay. Yes. You know, they've even yes. tried to make a number up and sort of go, there's like this stuff matches. I, I, whatever formula was employed. Do you remember in school where you'd like the name of the girl that you'd like, you'd get there oh, yeah. yours and you describe numbers to it and you'd work out a percentage match? That's was probably love, about- Number of L's, number of O's, number of V's. Did you, was that the one you did? There's a, there's a, actually, they're all forms of hashing, which is a whole other conversation we won't get into. But yes, I do oh, remember all of that. And, and I go. do know that it wasn't, look, in, in that regard and in Dexter's regard, I'm pretty sure it wasn't that scientific. But you know what? You. Us, us humans love the the <laughs> the the, uh, the the luster of of, of scientific, uh, uh, even if it's oh, pseudoscience. We? we know we love something that feels like it's framed yep. up with something. It's you know, at least based on some logical reasoning, <laughs> and the rest. Of, even really, when a lot of the times it's not. <laughs> I think we've got it all religion, mate. We still invent something because we just we just like to be able to have causes and rationales and yep. I mean the whole idea of karma, right? It's just this made up thing of like surely somehow there must be a, some sort of universal force that you know there's got to be some meaning to this stuff. It's it's incredible the way humans. I think I think we need it. I don't. I mean maybe it's cultural, maybe it's bred into us. But every culture's that as far as I know invented some version of some sort of deity for that those purposes. There's got to be something you know, innately human about wanting to ascribe motive or, or justification or reason to it. So I forget. I forget the source of this, but humanity was once described as, or humans described as storytelling, status-seeking toolmakers. And I kind of <laughs> think that really gets to the Pretty heart good, of what we are. And just, just why yeah. I say that is because the story part of it is we are, mm-hmm. uh, th- that's what we do, right? We, yeah. we, we, we uh, all, everything is really based on these narratives that we tell ourselves in these human institutions. Mm-hmm. It's all kind of made up. It's kind of really fundamentally important and real, but it's sometimes worth remembering that we are, we are just slightly cleverer apes that have <laughs> figured out how to tell other people's stories. And it's just, it's at the crux of what we do. And, yeah. and, and, a, and a good, a good scientific story, I think, is even more appealing these days. I think the trouble yeah. with it is often that we start with false premises. So you can have brilliant science or reasoning, but if the axioms themselves are wrong, then, then you're just going to get you know, garbage in, garbage out. And we're kind of, we're very self, um, not self-defeating, self-delusional in that way too. We don't even, we're not even built to really question the premise of the basis of those stories. The, the false oh, premises yeah. we start from, as you say, you know, it's why marketing is so incredibly seductive because we kind of just, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know why I have no, I have no evolutionary biology background. Clearly, as this is well and truly know by now, but uh, that idea of just someone says, well, you know, it, it, the way we frame a question yep. or a conversation, the way you frame a debate, um, I don't want to get into it right now, but think about the voice debate right now, right? There's kind of this framing from both sides of if you believe this, then that. 
Yeah. It, it's completely separate from the question being asked. Really, neither side is genuinely saying this is the question we need to answer. One side is saying it's divisive. The other side is saying if you care about the issue, you should vote for it. Mm. Neither is really saying this is the right solution for the right identified problem. It, it's it's you know the, the messaging, the language, the marketing is all about that idea of if you can own the question, if you can if you can own the framing, yes, you can kind of you know control, not control the outcome, but deeply deeply influence it. Yeah, I, you, it's it's we should more often reject the premise of the question. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> as uh, Julia Gillard said. Yeah, or Scott Morrison. Don't say it's Julia Gillard. I said it was that once, and a whole lot of people attacking me. So if if it was Scott Morrison, blame Andrew. If it's Julia know, whoever Morrison, said Andrew it, too. it was it, someone it, it, said it. You know, and they were right. Be used cynically, exactly of course, right. but yeah, yeah. No, that's I mean that's marketing one hundred and one, right? It just it just is. Um, take those things. I'm I'm reading it, listening to actually on audiobook a great book at the moment called Willpower. I don't know if you've had oh, a chance yeah. to, to no, have a, a listener or a read. Uh, Darius, one of the guys that works with us, uh, suggested this one. I was talking to the team about it a couple of weeks ago. And I downloaded it and have uh, have made my way through a couple of chapters of it. And just the, you know, we all know, for example, if you're getting surgery, statistically, you want a surgery in the morning rather than the evening because the doctor makes mistakes, right? Um, there's also just simple things like the amount of time since you ate and your ability to exercise willpower or judgment. Like just, just like for all for all of the things that we think we're clever enough to do, we put man on the moon, nuclear weapons, the whole box and dice. If we haven't eaten, we're just irrational monkeys, as you say. Like it literally is that very simple, and yeah. it it is both illuminating and stunning. A quick shout out, by the way, uh, I say uh, somewhat sarcastically to those who still believe that humans are entirely rational, control everything that we do. Every time, every now and again, I talk about addiction on on Twitter, for example, and I get a small cohort of people. And g'day, if you're listening, who then tell me it's not a real thing, or they should just control themselves. And and you know, there's an element of self control in all this stuff, including willpower. But the 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 fiction that we are just uber rational beings that have absolute conscious control of, of our lives is just the most amazing speaking of self-delusion it's just the most amazing self-delusion i think is probably out there the idea that i can somehow by sheer force of will and intellect be better than my evolutionary and biological reality it's mm-hmm. just I, I it blows my mind that that you know some about science people won't, won't listen to the real science of that stuff it's 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 scary i i think it's like someone made the point recently that marketers are far better economists than economists mm-hmm. are and, 100%. 100%. You know, and because and if you're in marketing, you've got yeah. to ship a good, right? You've got yeah, to huh. try and spur demand. Like you are very much tested in the real world, real market. And if you're not good at it, it doesn't work. And things mm-hmm. that are good continue to be used and refined because yep. it's tested, right? It, exactly. ob- ob- objectively. Yes, yes. Whereas within the, you know, the, the lecture halls of, of mm-hmm. the universities or whatever, there's all kinds of really great sort of theories and narratives that might very complex in their construction and everything, but they're yes. not they're not often, well, you can't really do very clean experiments in this. So it's sort of, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's telling. And I think, that, I think the economics profession is sort of mm. slowly coming over. They say that science progresses one funeral at a time and yeah. you kind of need the old generation to die out, right? Yes. Before, yes. But I am glad to see sort of economics and our, our sort of area sort of being more awake to the reality of the irrationalities of, of human beings and, and, and how important it is. Uh, Richard Thaler, the uh, Nobel Prize winning economist or the uh, Nobel what is, it, what is it these days? It's something uh, award in memory of Alfred Nobel. Anyway, not an official Nobel Prize before someone corrects me on it. Um, won the award and was asked something similar about science progressing one funeral at a time, saying, you know, how do you how do you deal with, you know, the classical economist? He's a behavioral economist. So, you know, how do you deal with the classical economist? He said, don't bother. I just teach the kids. Yeah. 
That's the same thing. I'm not, I'm, not I'm not changing anybody's mind. I'm just getting to the kids who haven't been poisoned by, you know, the older beliefs and just saying, here's the reality, kids. You need to know this stuff. And it's it's exactly that same thing. And it's so incredibly important. Um, oh, it is. I, I, you're right. It's changing. So you've got to be careful um, generalizing too much. But economics is largely applied maths. Marketing is applied psychology. And I, yes. I, would, I would back applied psychology every single day and twice on Sundays because yep. that's the reality of how humans actually behave rather than how we wish they would behave if we could, if we could control for everything else because you can't. Yes. So, or by definition, you know. Um, yep. But speaking of which, some, some of, just back to willpower the book, some of the, some of the um, experiments are just fascinating. They did on, on, on people just to understand their ways of making decisions. And um, simple things like, you know, the more willpower you'd had to exert earlier, the less ability you had to exert willpower later, which again, kind of, this is scientifically proven. And we kind of, some people will sit here thinking, well, of course that's true. Other people won't believe it at all. Uh, but, you know, if you said to people, look, you call someone, use willpower, do this thing. And then after that, you say, now do this thing. Your ability to do the second thing is just stupidly diminished by the exercise of initial willpower early on. Yeah. Um, it, it, fast, just fascinating, fascinating book. Well worth to bring this to, to bring this to back to investing. Or, I'll go on, we're why not? Well, to bring it to investing. <laughs> exactly. um, I think so, what, what you, how we tend yeah. to the podcast. Yeah, go. yeah a long way. Um, yeah. The the what you do is you 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 recognize that it's there, and you also recognize that you're not going to act differently. Because yeah, that's, that's also true. Right? It is, but you can set the conditions. So you mentioned. Yeah. Before uh, me and my wife have a, a rule, we don't usually stick to it, but it's just like never go to the supermarket hungry, <laughs> yeah. because you're going to come back with so much junk, right? Because I'm just I'm hungry. Oh, a packet of everything looks good. Ooh, two yep. for one. I'll grab that. Yep. Everything looks yep. good, yep. right? And you yep. and, and like once it's in your home, you're going to eat the damn thing. Mm -hmm. So I think for investing, it's the same kind of thing where you you can mm -hmm. just know that I'm just. I'm not going to be the certain situations are not going to be conducive to me making. Mm -hmm objective decisions. I mean, I'm never, object, objectivity is a, as an ideal that we can strive towards and never get there, but I can choose to make an important investment decision uh, during market hours and the market is plummeting and something really scary is sort of happening. Or I can try and say to myself, listen, I at least have to do this outside of market hours, you know, which I try and do, frankly. I don't, don't always do it because of circumstances, but I, I like to sort of, if, if there's an investment I'm thinking of, I try and and, I, and and sometimes you really find something you get quite excited about early mm, on. Mm. I really try and force myself that even if I'm really like, at least wait a week, think about it over the weekend. Mm. If you're still set on it, okay, maybe do something on Monday. Now that doesn't mean I make perfect yeah. decisions, far from it. <laughs> but I know yeah. it's, I know I'm at least, I'm, I'm less likely to fall into mm. some of those behavioral mm. traps if mm. I'm just gonna be shooting from the hip every time a, a bit of, you know, AFR writes a story or company releases yeah. an announcement. Yep. Also, by the way, uh, some of the early findings of the book, before you make any decision, have breakfast or have lunch. Eat something and then consider it. Your, your brain literally, it's just, it's just physically doesn't operate the same way without enough glucose in the system. I remember that actually going all the way back to the HSC, which was many, many years ago. We're, we're not even called the HSC anymore, isn't it? It's like oh, TR God, or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. yeah um, they, they, they were one of the big tips was, you know, have a banana before your exam yeah, or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. And yeah. it kind of felt, it felt I, I don't know about you, but it felt to me like, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. Yeah. It's kind of like, no, it's actually, it, it is actually a thing. Mm -hmm. Hey, um, mm -hmm. let's get on some questions from <laughs> Probably a good idea. Something different. Uh, Hi, Scram, says Rob. Uh, I love listening to your pod machine, he says. People like the pod machine, Andrew. You give me a lot of <laughs> they do. For my, I, I, I'm a man of the people. Uh, my, <laughs> my first question is, where does the nickname Ram come from? <laughs> well, now, you, you, I, you, you coined it, so you, you should I probably did. explain it. I did. I, I love a nickname. And uh, of course, if your surname is Page, there's a lot of things you can be. 
but Rampage has to be one of them. <laughs> and so Andrew Rampage is is what came about. I should say, by the way, how long since you've been at the Motley Fool? Six, seven years, maybe. So there are at least two people uh, that uh, that. I work with who still refer to you as Ram, uh, either because I listen to the podcast, I just remember you from from uh, working with you in the past. So uh, they stuck, which is always which is always fun, um, mate. So he, his second question is, what exactly is it that the Motley Fool does? Ah, Rob, I man. see what you I see what you did there, Rob. Uh, largely, the Motley Fool asks what strawman.com is, uh, generally speaking. When I'm not doing that, though, uh, the op business uh, gives financial advice in the form of a little bit of education, uh, a little bit of commentary, but mostly uh, ASX and US-based stock recommendations. Uh, got a range of services. I'm sure you know. I'm sure you do it just to ask me the question. But given you asked, again, as I said before, I get in trouble with the boss, but I didn't at least make the effort. Uh, to uh, to mention that that's what we do, uh, you can join us at fool.com.au. But I, I also do that. have to ask you what strawman.com is, Andrew, because that would be unfair. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a private online investment club. Is is, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Strawman.com. Check it out. Fantastic. Love it. Hey, um, th- my third and final question says Rob is about holding cash slash waiting for opportunities. That is, I understand that quote time in the market is more important than timing the market, end quote. However, so always however, I find myself currently holding about one quarter of my portfolio in cash. Up until recently, I had been fully invested, but I recently made the change, as I'm thinking it may be possible that we have a correction sometime soon. Another reason I sold some shares and have cash is that I found myself continuously searching for new ideas rather than concentrating on my best ideas. I'd love to hear your in-depth views on when to hold them versus when to fold them. Cheers, Rob. Rob, extra points for the Kenny Rogers reference. Yes. I have I have used that in my writing before. As well as, by the way, you know, do you know the Steve Miller band song, The Joker? Yes. Some people call me the Space Cowboy. Some people call me the yeah, Gangster yeah, of Love. Classic. Some people call me Maurice. I actually did open an email once with those words, which uh, <laughs> that, as, as uh, my, my former colleague Chris Hill in the US used to like to say, you won't hear that on Bloomberg. And uh, no, you, you don't read that in most other uh, investment advice uh, publications. Mate, um, let's, let's, uh, let's take the Kenny Rogers opportunity provided by Rob. It's a re- I love the fact, frankly, um, that he sold some shares because he found himself consciously uh, continuing searching for new ideas rather than concentrating on my best ideas. I think what Rob's yeah. saying here is he felt he was over-diversified for the sake of it and kind of wanted to, wanted to go back to the stuff he had highest conviction in, which I quite like. By yep. the way, we have a podcast coming up in a few weeks' time on portfolio construction, Rob. So uh, do check that one out when it publishes. We have pre-recorded it because we're out of order going on holidays soon, but that's uh, we did do that. So have a listen to that one. But mate, um, a quarter of the portfolio in cash, thinking it might be possible we have a correction sometime soon. Uh, Rob thinks that he knows that timing time in the market is more important than timing the market, but here's where he finds himself. Is he on the right track? Is he making a mistake? Does it matter? What say you? I mean, I some of those bearish leanings resonate with me. Um, <laughs> the podcast we recorded on Friday probably illustrates that a little bit. So I get it, right? I get it. You made the point though on, on Friday's pod that it's kind of, that's what everyone expects. So mm-hmm. it's not about what happens. So if Australia gets into a recession, um, it's kind of what I think a, a reasonable percentage of the market expects. 
Mm. So it's more a question of, well, is it worse than we expect? Or does it last longer than we expect? So it's a slightly right, different right, right. question. You, you've got yep. to remember markets are always sort of forward-looking. So it could be mm. that we have the recession, but it actually is shorter than we expected or shallower <laughs> than we expected. And the market rallies, mm. right? And and you were right. You said, I thought there was going to be a recession. I know I'm, I'm sort of embellishing on your, your sentiment here, but like, you know, yes, there was a recession. Turns out that you know the market never really got much lower than it is today. Maybe it went sideways for eight months. Maybe it dipped down another five or ten percent along the way, and then and then onwards and upwards from there. So you can be right and wrong at the same time. Right in your expectation, wrong in terms of what what yeah. was going to happen at the causal yeah. layer, but how the market reacted could be very wrong. And I have known many many very smart investors who have had really really cogent arguments as to why mm -hmm. X Y and Z would happen. And just never did. And they're not idiots, but it's just like it's just it's the nature of things. So I, I do think you have to have um, a reasonable degree of humility and just sort of saying, and really believing this at mm. your core level that I can't do it. I can't do it. Right. <laughs> um, so so if you have, and, and this is a very important point, if you have the capacity to remain invested over what might be considered a typical economic cycle. But we usually mm. sort of say five years plus as a minimum. And that is part of your expectation. And the other part of the expectation is, is that look, things go up and down, but they generally sort of go up over time. I think you can still have that worry, have that concern, have that expectation and still completely rationally be fully invested, which, which is why the saying is time in the market, not timing the market. <laughs> yeah. And you only have to miss, you know, I, I forget the exact stat. There's various ways of cutting this, but lots of people have just said, I'm take out the top three day, three trading days of each year and the annual return drops significantly. So you might have just been out of a little of the mark for a little period of time, and and already it's like you know behind the, behind uh, everyone else. So it's it's tricky. Um, if on the other hand, I and this is true no matter your outlook. If if even if you're hyper bullish, if I reasonably expect that money because I want to put a deposit on a house or go on holidays or something yeah. in the next six, twelve, twenty four, even thirty six months, you know, I, I'd be very hesitant as as as, as much as a lover of the investment. Uh, of, of the share market that I am, I don't think I'd invest any. I keep a very high mm. percentage in cash, so there's there's that contextual element to it. The second part of it, I have much more sympathy for and and agree with, which is so. The, I think the ideal is is wherever I can, I try and ma remain more or less fully invested. If, however, you just don't have any good options. Mm. It's not about forecasting. Yeah. It's just like saying, what's my current opportunity set? It's not very attractive. Well, cash isn't very attractive either, but there's not enough of conviction and upside as I see it. I might be wrong, but as I see it at this mm -hmm. point in time, for, for, for me to take on that extra risk. And so I'll leave it in cash. I, I've got plenty of sympathy for, for that, that viewpoint because it's not, it's not trying to predict the future. It's just about saying, look, I'd like to stay fully invested it just turns out that every company in the market's on a P of 100 <laughs> and a yield of 0.01% on average. I, I, I just can't, I can't do it. I, mm. I, I think that's perfectly rational. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, Rob, I, we just, we just, and I just finished tangenting, which I'm not sure, is it possible to tangent when you start with that? Is, is that, is that still a tangent or is that just a, uh, a different introduction? I'm not entirely sure. Uh, yeah. But we just finished talking about behavioral psychology. I, I'm a simple man, mate. I reckon if I do things roughly right often enough, then I'll do pretty well. If I try and get too clever, 
A, I'll probably be wrong, and B, even if I'm right, whether it justifies the effort, time, it returns, and, and everything else that goes into it, it's an open question. I would just look at the Vanguard index chart, mate, and say, at what point was it a bad idea to invest? Now, let's not say, you know, did shares drop the next day or the day after or three months later or a year later or was there were there better times in hindsight to invest? The answers are always yes, because when you have the history in front of you, uh, you know, we, we could have euthanized Hitler at birth and saved a lot of problems, but we didn't get there because you can't, so you don't. The reality is that, um, you know, you look at the index chart and go, do I want to bet against that or do I want to bet with that? You know, do I want to, do I want to sail into the wind or do I want the wind behind me? I have a very strong conviction. There's no reason to believe that 120 plus years of history stops anytime soon. Maybe it does. Who knows? But again, if I'm if I'm setting the odds, if I'm if I'm trying to find things to put in my favour, the power of capitalism writ large for 120 years has been remarkable. Um, is there a correction coming? I don't know. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe next week. Maybe three months time. Maybe there's definitely time. a correction coming. Right. And just and, but, but and, when? <laughs> and if the market's up 20 percent before it falls 10 percent, then you know was it was it really worth waiting for? Uh, you know, now, the longer you wait, the closer the correction is. But the longer you wait, the more gains you've given up in the meantime. So you kind of control, you can, you can give yourself a whole lot of stuff. So really, really, really simply, I'm not smart enough. I don't know who's smart enough to try and time markets. So I don't. I stay reasonably fully invested at Ram's point, unless I just don't get around to it or haven't got a better idea. Um, I echo his point about, you know, by all means, keep cash if you, you know, don't, don't invest cash for the sake of it at, at, at rubbish. Um, there is, if you're going to be, if it's going to be a long time, you may find it worthwhile to look at, an ETF that tracks the market, for example. If you can't find an individual idea, but you don't want to, you don't want to bet against the market by holding cash. There yeah, are many worse great, things to do than point. that. So be careful of short-term capital gains tax, of course. But other than that, unless you're making some money, right? If you, if you pay short-term capital gains tax, it's because you made a short-term capital gain, which is better than cash in the bank. So Don't uh, ever I, I not make an investment because you're worried about paying tax. That is the dumbest. I mean, it, it bears emphasizing because too often you hear people whinge about that. It's like, yep. you know... Well, there is one way to not pay any capital gains, right? And it's called losing money. So if that's what you want. Oh, yes. man. Yeah. Let's, um, let's go to Robbo who says, Hey, Scott and Ram, another fan of the pod machine. I'm telling you, Ram, it's two out of two. It's catching on. Love your work, guys. Thank you, Robbo. After listening to one of the latest episodes and hearing Scott talk about wanting to visit the Kimberley, I thought I'd touch base and just let you know to get in contact with me if you ever head up this way. Of course, the offer goes out to Ram as well. I've been a tour guide in the Kimberley. Oh, mate, are there better jobs than that? And I've traveled the area extensively in both the dry and the wet seasons. I now live in Kananara permanently instead of on the road. If any of the full team or podcast team are looking at coming this way, I would love to give you some local insights as I feel it'd be a great way to give back after listening to the wonderful, brackets not specific to my financial situation, close brackets, advice and rants on some great topics. The Kimberley is definitely one of the best, most beautiful and most amazing areas in Australia and the world for that matter. And I love to share it and pass on my knowledge and stories that go with it. It really is one of the last true wilderness areas left in the world. That's kind regards from Robbo. Robbo, thank you, mate. Uh, that was a comment rather than a question, but I uh, wanted to share it. It's very kind of you. And uh, mate, let us know. Let us know what uh, what businesses you work for and we can uh, we can give you a shout out on the pod. Uh, I don't know if I'll get to the Kimberley anytime soon, mate, but geez, I'm keen. So if it's not soon, it's not going to be that far away. I, I'm desperate, desperate to get up there. So thank you, mate. I appreciate it. Uh, this it feels, from, it feels okay. like a um, underexploited, no, I'm going to use that term carefully, a resource. <laughs> yes. From a tourism yeah. standpoint, like oh, we we get yeah. we, the amount of 
money that we make as a country through the Great Barrier Reef, which is mm-hmm. a, just from an economic lens, you, that's yep. probably one reason to protect the damn thing. But yep. um, yeah, I, I, I have not been there myself, but I only hear amazing things. And I, I think it's something that very few people travel to. And it's just sort of like, we often talk about comparative advantages for different countries. Oh, well, yes. Kimberley exists in one place. You can only go to the Amazon <laughs> in one place. I, can you know? I, 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 I might, you know, if I don't give you treasurer, I want to be tourism minister for exactly that reason. You think about the stuff that Australia has. I mean, everyone's got their unique stuff, right? Don't get me wrong. We're not, we're not necessarily exceptional. but Everyone's got their own unique stuff, but we've right? uniquely got our stuff, right? Right. And and the fact we're not using more, making more of that and trying to get more people to come. I know we're, you know, in theory, trying our best, but uh, like just like we pay, we, we charge a departure tax to leave the country, right? Like <laughs> I know we need to raise some tax revenue, but geez, guys, or, you know, customs. Hey, welcome to Australia. Stand a customs line for three and a half hours while some surly security guards stare at you. Yes, we need border security, absolutely. But you know what? We could have four times as many customs staff. People get through in 10 minutes and go, my first impression of Australia was a smiling customs agent, a short line, a very welcoming airport. How good is Australia? It's about a chance to make first impressions. What's the first impression when you arrive here? Stand in a line in the heat carrying your bags. Welcome to Australia. Anyway, drives <laughs> that's you true. That's true of most international airports, but yeah. I take, that's I take what I mean, but point. imagine if yeah. Australia was different. Imagine if people were like, you know what? I know the flight's long, but when you get there, you have such a great experience. It's wonderful. Surprisingly great. You try it. You go there and go, oh man, it was. How good's that? I don't know. Anyway. Anyway, the irony, the irony is, of course, if we got too good at it, the Kimberley would just be full of rubbish and tourists. And it was there like, was all of a sudden, I don't want to go there anymore. Robbo's all of a sudden, no, 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 no. Don't, anyway. don't do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Mate, the next question is from Jack. Well, from Jack, but but it's signed, cheers, Jack's friend. So let's, uh, let's unpack that a little bit. Uh, hello, Suave Scott. An articulate Andrew. Oh, that's a that's a pretty impressive uh, build up. I, Jack's obviously heard your your desire to be uh, flattered, Andrew. It's, hard, it's always hard to detect sarcasm in the written. Word. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> that's it. Thank you so much. He says for your no BS, calculated and simply explained, or as simply as can be expected for such a complicated world approach. It is quite the antidote to the finance industry in which I find myself. Oh dear! I always look forward to the podcast machine. That's three out of three, Ram. Telling me there is 60, well, more like 90 minutes of investing wisdom for me to fill my brain with on the weekend. Anyway, here is the question. I'd love for you to explain to me the pros and cons of moving from a micro-investing platform, such as Raise or Perler or Vanguard, personal investor, to, quotes, proper investing using a diversified broad-based ETF portfolio in one of the brokerage accounts. I have a brackets or quotes friend who is trying to work this out at the moment. Obviously, you can't give personal advice, but I'm sure my friend would love to hear your perspective. (laughs) I believe, says Jack, he is planning to do a lump sum transfer out of raise, of which he has invested in expensive and questionable quotes ethical ETFs, close quotes, wake up to himself and invest in low cost broad based ETFs in another broker. He's done a spreadsheet and shown over a 30-year time frame how much fees really eat into returns, showing based on some assumptions, he will end up significantly better off over 30 years after changing to a, quotes, proper investing approach, assuming for round numbers, sake, a 10% average return with $1,000 being invested over this time. Accompanying this spreadsheet, he says, is thinking through a cost-benefit framework, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on if there's anything important he is missing. 
This is Jack's friend, of course. Mm. Uh, pros of proper investing, he says. Brokerage fees are better, more flexibility, and chess sponsorship. In brackets, world's cheapest insurance. I'm sure I've heard that somewhere. Yeah, you may have. The cons of proper investing, he says. Brokerage fees, as above. Flexibility, the investment strategy not being followed, whereas micro-investing has an auto-investment feature. And the tax implications. He says, my friend would face CGT implications. I know he is finding it difficult to work out the value of the pros and cons and would appreciate a nuanced view into how you would think about this. For example, he says, I know that having an auto-invest feature has meant he has probably invested more and been better at staying the course over the last four or so years, but this comes at a cost with the associated monthly fees. Even though the flexibility to be able to allocate to positions more tactically appeals to him because he feels he has developed a strong investing temperament, bracket started investing just before the COVID crash, this leaves potential for more emotional investing, of which uh, does not likely yield great results. Another complicating factor, he says, is at some point, my friend is going to probably start investing into individual shares at some point. Hopefully, this is above and beyond this core ETF approach, but who knows where life will take him. Great work, and I wish you all the best with your various enterprises. Go straw man and go the Motley Fool. Anyway, enough from me, signed by Jack's friend. I'm, I'm going to assume, Jack, your friend is uh, she shares some very strong similarities with you, Jack, is all, all I'm suggesting. Your, your friend's name is probably Jack, uh, maybe even from the body of the same name, as Richie Bano might say, and one of those great <laughs> dwarf men. Uh, again, if you're too young, ignore the reference. Uh, records. Mate, um, some really good questions from, from Jack's friend there. I like the idea of the, the kind of, you know, simple set and forget auto brokerage things, but the fees are pretty significant mm. and the options are reasonably limited where do you come down on that kind of spectrum of do it for me and suck up the fees versus take my chances maybe get it right maybe get it wrong save some cash uh, look if you can be reasonably confident in in the fact that you can act discipline in a, in a disciplined manner it's no contest the second option is better right, right. The only advantage of those platforms, to my mind, is and these are these are very real advantages. I'm not trying to downplay them, but the only advantages are that I can transact with very small amounts, and it automates it. Mm. And so, if you're someone who feels as though, well, look, I, I'm just I'm just going to put money aside each paycheck and will commit to invest it each and every month, then it's just so easy, and it gives you all that other optionality you want. I understand the tax is always a, a, a an issue, but um, you'll be rebasing it for your future self, at mm. least. So you know, that's assuming you've got a huge capital gains tax problem in the first place, given even the timeframes <laughs> that you've talked about. Maybe it's not yeah. that big a whack, right? Yeah. Maybe it's even a loss to carry forward. But it, but even if it is a gain, okay, you'll pay that now. But then when you eventually sell whatever down the track, <laughs> you're, you're now calculating off a much mm. higher base. Mm. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, for the timeframes that you're probably working about, I wouldn't let that, it'll suck that particular year. Yes, yes. Uh, and maybe if you can, that's, that's another good thing to think about it is that if you can, if you know that there's going to be a year where you're, I don't know, taking a sabbatical to go around Europe or whatever it is, I'm just going to have a lower income year. That's a good time mm. to do it, right? Mm. Or the market happens to be down. That's a really good time to do it as well. But they're more tactical decisions. As, as far as the, the framing, I think Jack's friend should should go to a, <laughs> a, a lower cost full, you know, full service broker and mm -hmm. just and just try and commit to, you know, little things can really help you. Just like setting a reminder on your phone, right? It's like, oh, bing, bing, bing. Okay, yep. Yes. Today I said I would do it. I'm going to do it, right? And uh, it, it is, it, it does, I, I want to say, yes, it takes discipline, but it's not like, 
I'm going to run a marathon every day and, and <laughs> bench press, you know, 100 yeah. kilos. You know, it's it's an it's an and it gets easier with time when you just sort of made it. So yeah, I think yeah. The, I think those advantages outweigh the other ones. Yeah, I um, I mean, we're talking about behavioral psychology, right? The the platforms basically just wrap up a lot of those challenges for you and then charge you to help you help yourself. Yep. And that's why, to Ram's point, they can be spectacularly good for exactly those reasons. If, if, if they do things for you that you can't, or frankly, even might not. So think about risk. Think, sorry, think about regret minimization. I think it's Bezos, Jeff Bezos, Amazon CEO, who talks about having a regret minimization framework. What am I, I going to regret more? Yeah. Am I going to regret the, the fact I paid a bit more in fees? Probably. Am I going to regret more trying to do it myself and screwing it up? Well, in a relative sense, uh, it, it depends how badly you screw it up. But if I want to minimize the chance of making a mistake, would I accept a lower... Now, no, I was going to say guaranteed return. I need to be careful. But would I, would I accept a higher fee, lower return outcome by, by trading off the, the fact that I knew that I knew that I knew what would happen anyway uh, without taking the risk? I don't know. I, for some people, me personally, no. I'm, I'm actually really... I, I, if you've seen me on TV recently, you'll know I've uh, been in the uh, good paddock for a little bit too long. I probably need to uh, cut down on the carbs, but I'm, I'm not very good at that. I am very good at being disciplined as an investor. Just, just, it's just the way I'm wired, right? So I don't need to use personally those platforms. Not because I'm better than anybody else. Not because I'm superior, or it's just, it's just the way I happen to be wired. If someone else is wired differently, they can be stick thin, but can't invest to save themselves. Well. Make some different choices, right? I probably should have padlock on the fridge. You probably should use Raise or one of those platforms because that just makes sense for you. And that that's completely okay. So I think that's right. What I would say is you can probably do for yourself a little bit of what um, these platforms do and you can find maybe some halfway house. For example, um, the pre-commitment of using a Raise or whatever it is, is having your own independent separate account. You know, I have a, a, a savings account with Comsec or Commonwealth Bank, but through Comsec, I put money in there every single payday. Money never, ever, ever, ever comes out of that account for any reason at all, no matter what. That's my auto invest. Now, I don't always invest the money directly, independently and straight away, but the money never comes back out. It will be invested eventually over time. And I can do that knowing I'm going to do it because I have for way too long now, many years, a couple of decades and a half. Uh, and I'll continue to do that because that's the way I'm wired. So I don't need to use those particular tools. But other people should, and absolutely, the fees are worth it. It's it's the cost of, you know, the co the cost of getting. It's like, you know, could I could I fix the car myself if I was if I was appropriately, you know, um, capable and interested and, and whatever? Yeah, probably should because I save the money. Am I better off because I'm not mechanically minded? Get someone else to do it? Yeah. Am I going to pay more in the long term for it? Yeah, but I minimise the chance my brakes actually don't work at some really important point when they're needed. So I'm not mm -hmm. going to do my own brake work. So I just I just not doesn't make any sense for me to do that. So as a as a as a metaphor. Um, I think that's probably something to have a think about. So I would, I would be happy to do that. If someone said to me that's what they're doing, I'm like, go, keep going. Uh, but one, one last thing, actually, one, one quick bit in between. I'm a massive Vanguard fan. Um, everyone knows that I have no particular interest. I have no financial interest in Vanguard at all. I invest in some of their ETFs, but uh, trust me when I say that they don't pay me to do that. I just do it because I like it. Um, you actually can... Uh, one of the halfway houses, Jack, or Jack for your friend, is um, you, can, you can literally just EFT... Uh, direct debit money to Vanguard every payday or every period, every week, fortnight, month, and they will invest in an off-market ETF. It's not actually an ETF because it's off-market, but uh, you know uh, the same thing as the ETF itself. You just literally send them cash uh, via direct, direct deposit every every pay period. That that's probably a a much lower cost version of 
um, of a of a raise or, or whatever platform micro or pearl or micro or one of those exactly the same kind of approach so whichever one works for you that's somewhere in between um i would do i, w- I would choose the regret minimization framework it's just so you know what at, at retirement which what will they re- what would i regret more and, and make a decision based on that nice uh mate speaking of uh we're getting a lot of uh i don't know what a lot of positive uh feedback a lot of uh people listening to the podcast because the next one uh comes from travis who says hi guys one for the podcast after scott talking about the outback and ram talking about xrf i thought i'd combine the two with a photo of the outback with my portable xrf gun and i can say ram i have a photo here of the xrf is it okay i'm looking at what the word is on there um bruca bruca Gun. oh yeah yep uh it's got a bit a fair bit of uh masking tape on it travis i don't know if you've dropped it before mate or or something that i can i can say there's red dirt and blue sky in the background uh taken late in the afternoon based on the long shadow it's being cast but uh yep the brookie gun is, is there taped up nicely uh he says uh, xrf is certainly exciting technology giving us the ability to zap something and see some of the elements that make it it seems to be often used by councils or importers to check lead levels in paint and imports into the country that's interesting considering it's a delicate and expensive tool about seventy thousand dollars wow oh here we go it was a notable day at a previous employer when a buff head not his real name left the xrf gun on the back of a ute tray and drove off Oof. to to quote an old ad cost of portable xrf gun seventy thousand dollars seeing the look on the exploration manager's face in the ute behind as he watched the xrf gun fall off the back of the ute and bounce across the track priceless keep up the good work travis and he says p.s sent via starlink see picture starlink oh. is great for regional use but elon is still a buff head uh, <laughs> and he shows a download of 212.78 megabits a second upload of 21.06 that is some serious outback speeds yeah yeah how cool is technology dude that's fantastic i know you're a big fan oh don't get me started yeah and That's- and uh, yeah, I mean XRF doing some really interesting things. I I uh, you know it's it, these are the must have for, for mm-hmm. people in the field these kinds of things. So yep, yeah, seventy grand. Oof. I guess it's worth. It. That's the thing, right? This is the thing. It's just like we we too often make a judgment based on on the price mm-hmm. tag. It's more about what it enables, yeah. right? It's a capital good essentially. It's like well, yes, that, true. This is you know uh, true, true. Um, yeah, it. it um, I'll make a related sort of point here. The mm. the new Apple headset, we should probably talk about one of these podcasts, oh. right? It's three and a half grand US. Yeah, yeah. I think it's cheap. Um, oh, do you? Yeah, yeah, I do. And and I think, no, I don't think that the ecosystem is there that's sort of ready right. for it. Right, right. But I'm already buying a phone, which is old tech at this stage, for one and a half grand. Yeah, and a two extra grand. I've got all that added functionality. Do you think that they they're not going to sell a ton anyway? You oh, know? probably. It's like, is it out of reach for a lot of people? Yeah, but they're still going to sell enough, right? And then if, you, if you have if you have cult members, you've got to sell them something. Yeah, but look, that, what, what's the point of having a cult if you don't sell them something? The the, the purest <laughs> market capitalists would say you should charge whatever the market can. Bear. Oh God, yeah, absolutely. And and this is like I guess where I'm leading up to here is this is always a very fundamental and <laughs> core thing to think about with any company mm, is mm. is just sort of like. Mm. How many people can make um, a, a Google VR 
yeah. augmented reality goggles. Well, oh, yeah. sorry, an yeah. Apple. Uh, yeah, well, only Apple can by def- by definition. Yes, How many people yes. can make one of these sampling guns? Well, well mm. I guess there's a lower barrier there, but there's not a lot of people doing it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then you've, and you've got sort of patents around that. You've got technology around mm. that. You've got systems built up for that. You've got market brand and, and reputation sort of built all around those kinds of things. They're nice things to kind of look for, I think, rather than businesses that I'm selling a t-shirt, a which point. is virtually indistinguishable from any other one's t-shirt. And, you know, I, I had a cafe for a little while there, which is a, a <laughs> very uh, educational experience in terms of, of business and, and finance. And, you know, I might tell you that my coffee was better than the bloke next door, but no one cared, right? It was a commo- it was pure right, right. commodity, and therefore we had zero pricing power. And so those, yeah. I don't know, it's a, it's, a, it's a roundabout tangential kind of thing to sort of say that um, I, th- I think I think XRF's got some pretty cool kit. Very very cool, mate. Um, yeah, I my my big mistake for for the Apple thing was not recognize the power of the cult. I mean, I say I say it partly tongue in cheek, partly entirely seriously. Um, the prices people will pay because they're Apple fans. Whether they acknowledge it or not, um, you're paying miles over what these things are, are, are worth as component parts because it just it, it reflects on who you are. You like it. It works. It's fun. It's interesting. You convince yourself it's wonderful in all these different ways. It's you know it, it doesn't actually matter why. That's that's actually the key thing. The, the key is you know people will pay. You know if if Microsoft put out a three and a half grand headset, people would laugh and walk away. Mm-hmm. Even if it's exactly the same thing. Yep. Apple puts out one, it's like, well, it's Apple. It's just the, the Halo, the brand Halo is just so incredibly, incredibly powerful. That was Buffett's insight when he bought Apple shares for Berkshire Hathaway. Was, yep. I'm not, you know, people said, oh, Buffett's fine in buying a tech company. Can I tell you, anyone who thinks that somehow Buffett's got religion on tech, it's absolutely 1 million percent not the case. Yep. Buffett only bought Apple because of its astonishing consumer brand. power. He says much himself. Mm-hmm. There, there is no sense of, oh, he's finally got technology. It's got absolutely nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. As you say, it's, it's absolutely brand, mate. The, the, the conviction that people have in that brand how much they're prepared to pay for it is, uh, is extraordinary. I heard, uh, hey, heard yeah. a, re- a really good, uh, sorry, we're off topic already, no, but okay. I heard a, one of the takes I saw on Twitter was they call it a, they called it Apple's Larry's Latte moment. Now, I don't know if anyone out there is a fan of Curb Your Enthusiasm. If you're not, check it out. This is one of the co-writers of Seinfeld. This is a brilliant show. But Larry, in, David. Uh, Larry David at one point opens up a, coffee shop next door to, to someone else just purely for spite and so and so there was like Zuck Zuck has gone all in on the metaverse right he's rebranded the company it's all yeah. about that and Apple's yeah. like well maybe I, I don't know we're just going to do it to like screw up Zuck make sure that we <laughs> capture it before he does which I thought was I don't know how true it is but it's funny that sounds good, doesn't it hey uh, mate speaking of, uh, by the way last point just quickly the XRF gun uh, image uh, that, uh, that Travis sent through the file name was pew pew which i thought was <laughs> so there That's we go awesome. uh let's go to a question that you received and forwarded through to me uh from paul uh paul just quietly i've read the end of your uh, email and i don't appreciate the sarcasm thank you very much uh we'll get to that though uh he says hi scott and andrew please on oh, top of the email by says please for her to use my name in brackets very smart paul well done hi scott and andrew i have another question and this time it's a discussion or rant he says about VHDG. Now, Paul, you obviously haven't heard my pre-recorded rant, speaking of rants about naming uh, companies by their ticker codes, but I will let you off just this once. This is the Vanguard high, Diversified High Growth, I think it is ETF. And the idea of, quotes, how can it be high growth if it has bonds? Close quote. If I recall correctly, the premise was to avoid this particular ETF because of hashtag bonds. I've recently been reading all about asset allocation by Richard Ferry. One thing that struck out to me was the idea that keeping 10% of bonds in your portfolio supported optimal portfolio rebalancing. 
The premise is that as the market goes higher, one's allocation of equities becomes too high, requiring a sell-off to buy bonds. If the allocation of equities becomes too low in a downturn, excuse me, use your bonds to buy equities. Both times you are making an opt optimal play with respect to equities, i.e. buy when it's cheaper and sell when they're higher. When I think about the potential operational challenges to this idea, there are two. One, you run out of equities to sell to buy bonds, unless, of course, you're down to your last Berkshire Hathaway Class A share. Or two, you run out of bonds or cash to sell to buy equities, more likely. When thinking on this, I remembered the Peter Lynch quote, quote, far more money has been lost by investors trying to anticipate corrections than lost in the corrections themselves, end quote. But in this situation, we're not trying to time anything. We're operating to a mechanical construct that requires us to sell equities when they're high and buy equities when they're low. With this in mind, what chinks can you see in the idea? To what extent do you think changes in bond value might disrupt this idea? And if there is no merit to the idea, would there be a better way of doing it? E.g., not with bonds. And then Paul finishes with, please keep answers under 90 minutes. <laughs> Paul. Thank you, Paul. No. <clears throat> yes, I, I get it. No. <laughs> and for that, we're not answering your question, Paul. That's all we have time for in this podcast. 90 minutes or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. If you don't love me, go away. You know, we're, we're, it's all about us. It's all about us. Ram, let, let's, uh, let's, let's break that 90-minute rule and answer this one in less than 90 minutes, just this once. Yep. It's a really good question. Uh, is Paul and, by definition, Richard Ferry onto something here? It's actually very well-established uh, practice. You know, it used to be the 60-40 rule, uh, equities and bonds. Um, mm. And then there was another other takes on it, which is the proportion should be relative to your age. Yeah. Do you remember how that one went? So, like, I hate that one most. 100 minus your age is the proportion you should keep in that's it. bonds that's it. or equities. equities, equities. Yeah. But effectively, they're worse in bonds anyway. So, yes. yes. So, they gen generally, we've seen very distinct um, <laughs> breaks of this relationship in recent times, but generally, they do tend to sort of be uncorrelated. So, one is weak when the other one is strong. And so it can make a lot of sense if mm. what you're desiring is more stability and less volatility. I think, I think, yeah, I think that makes makes perfect sense. But as always, I know I repeat myself here: every decision, every anything that has an advantage in investing, there's usually a compromise that comes along with it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And the there's no free lunch other than there's, diversification. Go there's on. really very few free lunches. Dollar cost averaging and diversification really the only mm -hmm. sort of two. But but the challenge is is like. Let's say that you're uh, 35 years old and you're going to work for another 30 years. Mm. You're going to have a much less bumpy ride with that. Um, yeah. But you're also going to do much worse than someone who's just 100% equities. <laughs> Even though the person mm. in 100% equities is going to feel those, those pullbacks much more severely than, than the other person. So, it, uh, you know, if, however, you're 65 and I think it makes a hell of a lot more sense um, I'll take. I'll, I will take that compromise hap happily. I will much mm. prefer more stability in, in in my level of wealth and what I can draw on when needed. Um, and I will forego some upside longer term potential um, because because that's what where I'm at at this stage of life. Mm. So it, it's nothing wrong with the idea. Just understand that there is a cost to it. Yeah. I. I think that's right, mate. You know, like with most of these questions, we have smart people asking smart questions where the downside is not big and the upside is not massive. And so you're roughly right anyway. Mm -hmm. You've only got 10% in bonds at the best of times or, you know, our average. 
if bonds go badly, you're only really harming temps in your portfolio. The 90% is doing the heavy lifting anyway, so it's probably fine. I think, Paul, my the way I would... Th- I wouldn't do this personally, partly because I don't need the volatility protection. But in terms of... If you just said I'm doing it for, for rebalancing purposes, and that, that's a, that's an unreasonable thing to say, I would I would suggest just thinking about, um, to your point, what happens when you run out of equities to, to or bonds uh, to sell to buy equities? Um, uh, I mean, it's always ten percent by definition, I suppose. But if you let, let's take, um, I'll take Amazon. Let's just do Amazon. Let's do the long term. I own Amazon shares. Everyone knows that. Let's go over the long term, right? So 1997, you say I own Amazon shares, and whenever uh, Amazon, whenever bonds get below uh, 10% of my portfolio, I'll sell some Amazon shares to buy bonds, keep it at 10%. So you sold Amazon shares at, at 30 cents, and then you sold some more at a dollar. Sold some more at $2, and then $5, and then $12, and then $80, and then $100, and $400. And along the way, uh, you've consistently sold down your better performance. Now, when the shares drop from 100 back to 80, you might have bought some extra Amazon shares. And that seems smart because you're buying more at a cheaper price. And eventually they went back up again. So you say, see, I did the right thing. But if you sold it $1 and $2 and $5 and $20 on the way, you've done yourself out of far, far, far more than you've made when you've opportunistically rebalanced. So again, as I said, I don't think this is a horrible idea at all. Um, there is, you know, I think overall you're probably... If, you, if, you've got, if you've got assets that are growing, if you had a cyclical... If this was cyclical, let me, let me start again. If... Shares were mean reverting, to use a term Andrew used on Friday. In other words, they went back to average. If you knew you were a sine wave cycling around an average, if I went up 10, then down 10, then up 10, then down 10, up 10, down 10, you could absolutely do exactly that. You, you, you know, buy when it's, uh, sell when it's high, buy when it's low, sell when it's high, buy, I do it over and over and over again. If you've got a series that keeps going higher and higher and higher over time, even with the occasional pullback, every time you sell something that is going to be higher in three or five or 10 years, you're doing yourself out of the opportunity to own that for that period of time and make all that money. And so it's just mathematically likely in my view. And again, I don't know what the future is going to hold. I can't promise you, no guarantees. And for all I know, it could be 100% wrong. If the market keeps going higher, every dollar you don't have invested in the market over the long term, again, as I said in response to one of the earlier questions, go to the Vanguard chart. You know, At what point did you not want to be 100% in shares? Now, the thing that came next is not much fun. If you were in all in shares in 87, when the market crashed, you lost 20% in a day. If you try and find that on a graph, it's bloody hard to find. Fast forward to 1999. If you want to be in, you want to be in shares, shares fell, whatever it was, 20% during the NASDAQ crash, more for the NASDAQ itself. But overall, you know, would you have liked to have sold the day before and bought the day after? Of course you would. But then over time, can you go back and find the 99 crash in a, in, on a chart? It's really, really hard to find. Even the GFC is hard to find now. On, on a crime, mean, you can find it, you can look for it, but it's not, the, it's not the horrible, desperate fall it seemed at the time. So bottom line, if you're invested in shares, and again, the compounding shows exactly that. Uh, my strong belief is that if you go backwards and forwards, uh, backwards in terms of the actual data and forwards in terms of what I expect to happen, you'll be much, much, much better off being in the better returning asset for the full extent of time. But as we say regularly, as Andrew says mostly, it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, it, when, I, when I say it depends, uh, in this case, depends on you, on, on the person that wants to consider the, the, the question. Is it something that you will feel better about? If you feel more in control, if you like the idea of being able to take some profits and therefore leaving less on the table, if you like the idea of being able to buy when stuff's fallen a little bit and you get to buy some more of it, then great, knock yourself out. I think this, this, someone who follows a 90% equity strategy will do perfectly fine, almost by definition. The other 10% can go to zero and you do perfectly fine. 
It won't go to zero because bonds will be okay. You'll have some bond exposure. It'll probably underperform the market. My guess is someone doing a 90-10 strategy over the next 40 years will do worse than someone doing 100% zero strategy. My best guess, I don't know for sure. No one does. So I wouldn't do it. But are you going to be terribly, terribly worse off and feel awful about the idea? No. Uh, the only thing I would say, the only thing I would say, and it goes back again to what I've said before, I've said a million times before, is it, it's, it's, there's an illusion of control there. That by being active, by doing a thing, I'm improving stuff. And that's not bad in itself until it starts to convince you you are better than you are. Not you personally, Paul, me, Andrew, anybody else. When we start to think, look how clever I am, look at the things I've done. I know, uh, Andrew, you've watched um, Jeremy Clarkson's Clarkson's Farm series, haven't you, on Amazon? No, I no, no, I've seen a little oh, bit of it. it. Yeah, yeah, people Anyway, at some, at some point, Jeremy Clarkson, I don't know what he does, but he stands up and yells, I did a thing! <laughs> and it's kind of that, you imagine the Jeremy Clarkson voice. And it's one of those things where it's just like, you, you feel like all of a sudden you've controlled something, you've done something, you're cleverer than you are. That can be really insidious. So generally speaking, I try and stay really, really humble. It's like, you know what? I don't want to do a thing. I want the market to do lots and lots of things for me. Um, and for me, it's like, just put the odds in your favor. And then just, as Andrew would say, toss that coin as many times as you can, mm. rather than trying to say, what if I just tried to be a little bit clever in how I designed the coin? What if I, it's like, you don't have to, just just toss the coin. So up to you, up to the, each individual. Uh, if you're someone who needs to, wants to do this because it makes them feel like they're more in control, go for it. Just don't fall for the illusion of control. Don't let it go to your head. Uh, don't start thinking you're cleverer than you might potentially be. And again, not because you're not clever, Paul, just because we're all uh, those people and we all have tendencies to believe our own press if we're allowed to. Yeah, but I mean, if, if, if the intention is I just want to knock off the peaks and troughs, yeah. then that's very, totally, this is, a, this is a really good approach. You know, to, yeah. But that, I mean, and that, that's what you need to ask. Do I want to do that? What's the compromise I want to make? Yeah, I'm happy. And I, I, no one can criticize you for that because that's what you desire and that's what you want. And it's, there is correct, value correct. in a less stressful, <laughs> volatile life. So, you know, it's, it's far be it for either of us to say definitely don't do it. Just just hopefully just sort of, you know, c consider consider the, the, the costs of, of, of doing it. There'll be some times where, you know, you can imagine if you'd done this, um, you know, just before the, the, the market tanked and you, you put a whole bunch of money into <laughs> to the bond portfolio, you'd be pretty yep, happy with yep. that, right? So, yeah. Yep. Um, but that's yep. almost my point. That, but that's, that is almost my point in terms of don't convince yourself you got you were smart by doing that, right? You, you might have got lucky if it was just before the GFC uh, or just before the COVID crash. Uh, I, I, I worry. I only worry that once you have a little bit of success, as you said, mate, plenty of times, the best thing you do with investing is lose the first time around. Yeah. Because the, 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 the arrogance and ego and hubris that comes with, you know, look what I did. I, I, I'm a genius. Uh, that, can be, that can be pretty poisonous if you let it. Not the poor would, but other people listening uh, and other people who aren't listening uh, potentially would let themselves do it. And that can be, uh, that can be a challenge. Well said. I reckon we're done, mate. Yeah. Will you come back next Friday? Can I can I twist your arm? I think I already have come back next Friday. Have oh, I? Oh, but you haven't, sir. I haven't. Okay. Well, next then I week will. is the last. Next week is the last one of our non-pre-recorded weeks until we do four weeks of pre-recorded. Oh. You haven't yet come back next week. Although by this time next week you will have come back this week because it would have been two days ago. In fact, recorded three days ago in readiness for today. I'm if lost. that makes any sense. I'm lost. <laughs> But if you need me to be here, I'll be here. <laughs> You're a very good man. Our listeners appreciate it. Until then, Andrew and dear listeners, full on. See ya. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener.
The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691.